0: Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can submit questions and comments to yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888 888- 2344YCC. This week it's a conversation about smoking cessation with Dr. Lisa Fuchido. Dr. Fuchido is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Director of the Tobacco Treatment Service at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Here's Dr. Stephen Gore. So tell us, um, tell us about the um, tobacco
1: cessation service at Smilo. What, what, what's offered there and what, what do you do?
2: Yeah. So we offer individual counseling and medication to patients who have just been diagnosed with cancer, who are cancer survivors, or patients who are undergoing a number of different treatments. So patients who are undergoing surgical procedures, who are going to be undergoing radiation or chemotherapy. Um, and we really work with them to develop an individualized plan to help them make, ideally, substantial changes to stop prior to a lot of these procedures. But if they're not able to do that, to help them at least get a head start on that. Um, so by the time time they come to us following treatment, they can continue to make further changes and ultimately stop.
1: I see. So the services at Smilo, in terms of tobacco cessation, Mm -hmm. are restricted to people with a diagnosis of cancer?
2: Well, ethically, we actually have to accept referrals from the rest of the hospital. So, you know, we do get referrals from the rest of Yale New Haven Hospital, but we really primarily are a Smilo-based service. Gotcha. Um, But You know, most hospitals actually have a hospital wide tobacco treatment service. So, we technically don't have that officially at Yale New Haven. We started with Smilo at first, but now we're really looking to try to see if we can extend the services throughout the hospital.
1: So, how long has this uh, program been in place?
2: Um, It's been in place since about 2007. Um, and it started off with just one of uh, my predecessors kind of just floating around the different departments through Smilo, looking for patients that were smokers, and just trying to see if he could walk in their room and just talk to them and see if he could engage them in treatment. And over time, it evolved. So we actually now have a designated space, and patients can come into a designated room. We're not trying to stalk the hallways for smokers. Now we actually have an organized service. So. I and mean,
1: that sounds like the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous, from what I understand. Yes, yes. You know, pounding the doors right. and trying to get people sober. <laughs> Uh-huh. So, uh, so that's fascinating. How, what is the staffing like? What kind of, uh, what is your training, and mm-hmm. and who else is on staff there?
2: So, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, and I've studied addiction. Um, so, I went to graduate school. That's what I studied, and then my postgraduate work here at Yale has been in addiction. Uh, we also have advanced practice nurses on our team, physicians, and we also run some clinical trials through the service. We also have research staff. It's multi multidisciplinary team essentially.
1: So, you're doing research as well as treatment.
2: Yes. So there is a new lung spore that was just awarded to Yale.
1: What's a spore?
2: Um, It's a specialized program of research um, where we're going to be focusing on patients with lung cancer and um, treatment for for lung cancer.
1: So that's some kind of a grant, is that right? Yes.
2: It's a very important grant that we are awarded. It's a center grant. It's a very large uh, center that's been established now at Yale. And we're going to be one of the core projects that's going to be part of that. Hmm. Um, Essentially patients who are going to be coming in through the lung cancer screening program, that's an opportunity for us to engage with them around their tobacco use. And so we're going to be testing one of two interventions uh, that potentially will be helpful to see what is the right feedback about health to give these patients to help motivate them to, to quit smoking.
1: So you're studying two interventions or
2: yes. two different well, ones? So essentially they'll get randomized to one of two I see. behavioral you're interventions. You're comparing two yes. different interventions. Yes.
1: Got it. Uh, but not all lung cancer patients are smokers, is that right? right? Right.
2: So technically to be eligible for lung cancer screening you had to have had a 30 pack year history. So by the time some patients I'm
1: sorry, p- pack year I don't I don't pack get year. That. So what we look we
2: it's basically an algorithm we use to establish the expo- amount of exposure that someone's had to tobacco. Okay. And so we 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 essentially look at the number of cigarette packs someone may have smoked across their lifetime. And so Essentially, 30 years of smoking a pack of cigarettes is, is you know, a threshold that they look at. And um, essentially, those patients are now eligible for the screening program. Mm-hmm. But a number of patients have actually already quit smoking. But nevertheless, you know, they may have quit smoking 10 years ago, but they still technically have had this 30-year smoking exposure that puts them at risk. We know that up to about 15 years after patients have quit smoking, they're still at heightened risk relative to a Mm non-smoker.
1: So you're screening smokers for cancer, is that right, in the study?
2: Well, the overall uh, lung cancer screening program is obviously screening all patients, but within... Within the study, we're going to be targeting people who are still smoking. Still
1: smoking. I get it. Mm-hmm. Got it, got it, got it. You confused me for a second there. Well, that's cool. So, so what are the, can you talk about the, what the two interventions are that your study is uh, examining?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so we're going to be looking at um, health feedback, for example. So there are a number of different biomarkers that you can – so biomarkers, essentially, a biological – Components of someone that you can give some feedback about.
1: Okay,
2: um, and obviously cancer risk is one of those. But there, you know, at, at, in any given moment, it may be hard to feel motivated by certain percentages of cancer risk. So there are other tests that we can give patients to give them a little bit more sort of in the moment feedback about how their body's doing right now. Mm -hmm. And that's what you use a lot of biomarker feedback about. So we'll be looking at their lung function, we'll be looking at some liver function scores, um, and some of their uh, skin carotenoids, which which is a very complicated term, but essentially what it means is, you know, these are important um, chemicals in the body essentially that help us to fight cancer. Okay, And so essentially, you know, one of the things that we know is that smokers potentially have lower levels of these important chemicals to help them fight cancer.
1: Even if they eat a lot of carrots? Doesn't that stuff come from carrots and right. stuff like yes. that? Right. Yes.
2: So beta-carotene is one of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, even if you have a healthy diet, it's, it can sometimes negate. Smoking can negate the benefits gotcha. of, of, of eating well, so it doesn't technically offset the risks of gotcha. smoking. So these are going to be some of the health markers that we're going to give feedback about. And we're going to give, in one group, we're going to give this feedback, and in the other group, we're going to, we're going to assess for these, but we're not technically going to give them the feedback. And we're hmm. looking to see if you get this additional information about your health status, is that motivating? Hmm. Um, we're also going to be giving different um, videos that talk about the benefits of smoking cessation. And one of the... Um, effective strategies that we've found over the years is that when you really talk about more of the benefits of stopping tobacco use, that's actually a lot more motivating than talking about all the risks and harms. If you look at the ads that are on television, for example, if anyone's ever, you know, watched a a sports event late at night, you see some of these New York State Quitline ads. Um, And sometimes they can be quite scary. They can be showing you some really awful effects of smoking. Now we know those are very motivating for young people to not start, but for someone who's been smoking 30 or 40 years, they've actually sometimes been shown to backfire Mm. because you already feel really bad about the fact that you're smoking and then you feel like-
1: Even worse, right? Yes.
2: So among people who are smoking and lifelong smokers, there's been a lot more research that suggests that you really should emphasize the benefits for those people and not continue to bombard them with a lot of the risks. Mm -hmm. So that's again what we're going to be manipulating.
1: And are the subjects also going to be receiving uh, uh, aids like nicotine gum or any of these Mm -hmm. drugs that I hope we'll get some time to talk about?
2: Yes. So they'll be receiving the nicotine patch, and then they'll get uh, standard counseling by one of our providers.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's kind of standard. Mm
2: -hmm. Standard treatment. And Uh then we're looking to see if manipulating some of these other components is also helpful.
1: What percentage of people Mm -hmm. who enter a... smoking cessation program like yours or similar ones Mm -hmm. actually are successful in maintaining abstinence from cigarettes?
2: Um, Well, so if we look at just what is the success rate across the board for people who don't even get support, Mm -hmm. you know, people who quit what what we call cold turkey. So you just try to one day decide to quit. You don't get any support. Um, After about a year, about 7% of those individuals will be smoke-free.
1: 7%. 7%. That's really small.
2: Yeah. If you add... Treatment. So if you add medication and counseling, you typically can get those rates up to 30, 40 or 50 percent. So we're not up to 100 percent for sure, um, but we substantially improve the odds that by the end of the year you're going to be smoke free. And so our program really provides all those known evidence based treatments to ensure that people get to that much higher rate. Hmm.
1: How does that compare, if you know, to Mm -hmm. uh, other sort of addiction uh, cessation mm-hmm. programs, whether it be amphetamines or mm-hmm. alcohol or gambling or anything right. else. You, has that been compared?
2: Um, essentially, if you look at all the substances, what we do know is that nicotine is often the most challenging one for people to stop. So we, even though we know that it's hard to stop drinking, we know that it's hard to stop using opiates, heroin, you know, painkillers. That. Oftentimes when you look in recovery programs, you'll see that individuals have actually been able to achieve abstinence from these other substances, but they're still smoking. And so I would say, I don't know for sure if there's really been a head-to-head comparison of them, but... When you look at the recovery rates in general, you know you see that people often are much more likely to be struggling long term with trying to change their nicotine use, whereas they can make a lot more substantial changes even with no medication, for, for example, with their drinking. Hmm. so we know across the board that addictive disorders are are really hard and they often involve you know multiple attempts at trying to make changes and you know unfortunately relapses and then trying again and nicotine seems to be the one that's the worst among those
1: and is there anything known about brain chemistry or is it the mm-hmm. social milieu in which you're used to smoking mm-hmm. the kind of the hand mouth right. thing or does anybody know why it's harder to quit nicotine
2: I'd say all of the above. I mean, I think you just basically hit the nail on the head with all of them. I mean, oftentimes, and particularly the people we see in our service, if you think about it, they've all started smoking probably around the age of 12, 13, whereas, the, you know, they may have started drinking early, but odds are they probably started a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And so among all the substances that people may have tried, this is the one where they really had the earliest exposure, the earliest exposure while their brains were still developing. And we do know that early exposure to nicotine to the developing brain has substantial changes, causes substantial neurobiological changes that that puts people at risk, Mm. essentially for a lifelong dependence on nicotine. So I'd say one problem is that people often start very young and they have exposure while their brain is still developing. Another one is that, like you said, there, there's that social environmental exposure. And so a lot of people grew up in households where they see other people smoking, they get exposed to other friends who are smoking. And so even though it's probably not as cool to smoke anymore and there's a little bit more sort of public stigma around smoking, a lot of people early on when they started felt like they were in an environment where it was supported to smoke, that it was perceived as being okay to hmm. do so. Um, and you know unfortunately there's also these genetic risk factors so we know that some people are simply just more vulnerable right when they start to smoke to becoming very hooked to it so i think there's a you know there's there's some strong genetic components oftentimes people started it very very early in life and so oftentimes when people come in i'll say you know this is a habit or behavior that you've done Millions and millions of times over, you've overlearned how to do this to the point where you don't even have to think about it anymore. Hmm. And that part of it, I think, also makes it really difficult for people.
1: Is it known whether the genetic uh, risk uh, for uh, being susceptible to nicotine addiction mm-hmm. is a cross risk for other addictions? Is there like ad- an addiction gene? Or mm-hmm. I mean, we certainly know from the the media, them right. look at you know the portrayals of mm-hmm. Narcotics Anonymous, mm-hmm. or everybody smoking, right? right? I mean.
2: So there's actually these receptors in your brain that when you smoke and you take in a tobacco product, these are called nicotinic receptors. So there's Mm. actually basically these doors that open when you take in nicotine and they cause a whole bunch of responses in your brain. So really, a lot of the genetic factors have looked at, in particular, some genetic variations in the nicotinic receptors in the brain. Um, And so while there probably are some sort of overall genetic risk factors across the addictive disorders, there are specific ones to nicotine.
1: Well, that's really fascinating. And I'm going to like to take that up again after our break. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about tobacco treatment and addiction with Dr. Lisa Fuchito.
0: The American Cancer Society estimates that over 1,500 people will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer in Connecticut alone this year. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and as a result, it's recommended that men and women over the age of 50 have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the one at Yale and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve the management of the disease by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in a more patient-specific treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm talking tonight
1: with our guest, Dr. Lisa Fuchito, about quitting smoking and tobacco treatment. Um, Lisa, before the uh, break, you were telling us about uh, particular receptors in the Mm -hmm. brain, I think, right, that Mm -hmm. that sense nicotine. And so so, am I right in understanding that that maybe there may be differences in people's receptors or in their brain's response to stimulation with nicotine? Predispose some people to nicotine right. addiction. Wow, the other thing I wanted to pick up on um, was um, the question of whether secondhand smoke in the household mm-hmm. growing up uh, does that affect a growing brain in a child or mm-hmm. adolescence? Do we do we know that?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, secondhand smoke is is very dangerous, and there's actually also what we call a third level where um, one of the things that we know about with nicotine and some of the other products that come off of tobacco products is that they're very hard to remove from clothing and from walls. If you've ever you know, gone into places where there's been smoking, you know, sometimes you've heard of these stories where the walls are almost yellow. And so all of those exposures to chemicals are very dangerous for people. Mm-hmm. And it, it is possible that you know, getting the exposure that way may sensitize people growing up. Such that when they initially then have access to it, that they potentially have a different response than someone who is not growing up in an environment where they didn't have that.
1: Yeah, That's fascinating. Of course, recently in the news, when Paul Ryan took over the speaker's office, uh, there was a lot of um, information about how uh, the whole place had to be fumigated and painted and Mm -hmm. everything replaced because Boehner is such a heavy smoker and the the place reeked. And, you know, uh, I find... I'm a little rude, actually, to some of my patients, I'm afraid, mm-hmm. because I have patients who walk in the room uh, or I walk in the room and mm-hmm. they they or their family mm-hmm. reek. And it's very difficult for me to tolerate mm-hmm. that. I'm very mm-hmm. uh, averse to, uh, you know, to whatever it is in tobacco. Uh, and I'll just comment, like, um, somebody smells like tobacco. And, okay. You know, again, I think it's a little rude, but I also feel like it's a little bit of a reality test. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether I'm out of line there, but uh, it, it is... It's 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 offensive to me, mm-hmm. and it's so unhealthy for the patient that I, I don't think people realize it that they smell so much. I don't know when they're heavy smokers.
2: Yeah, I mean I think p- people probably are aware of it, um, and I think the struggle is particularly with someone who's who probably smells at that level. They're probably a very dependent smoker, yeah. right? Is that you know they probably have gotten that feedback <laughs> and and
1: shut st- up, Steve. Right? Well, I helping. guess yeah,
2: the the problem that can sometimes happen is you know. You consider your healthcare provider, your your physician, to be someone who you, you know you you're you look up to, yeah. right? And so potentially, when that healthcare provider turns to you and says something that feels a little offensive, offensive, yeah. does it does it make you feel more of that stigma? Good point. And so I think acknowledge in your head that you smell it, and and then find a way that to. you can maybe bring it up. But I think. Reminding them that it's, you know, a bad thing and that, oh, by the way, you know, you smell.
1: <laughs> okay, learned my lesson there. <laughs> Thank you, Lisa. Might not be the most
2: motivating. Yeah,
1: point well taken. <laughs> Makes me feel a little better, but you're right. It's probably not necessarily right. helping the patient. Uh, tell, tell me about the um, the various uh, pharmacological or drugs mm-hmm. agents uh, which have been used and uh, um, you know, seem to help some people. Mm -hmm. I guess Wellbutrin is one of them. Right.
2: Yeah. So there's three main medications that we have to help people stop smoking. Um, Nicotine replacement. So essentially, you're just taking the nicotine that you're getting from a tobacco product like a cigarette and just replacing it in another form. So you've probably heard of and others in the audience have probably heard of there's the nicotine patch and you put Essentially, it's delivered through your skin for 24 hours. You just put the patch on, and the, the nicotine is absorbed through your skin. There are things like nicotine gum and the nicotine lozenge, which you take orally. Um, and again, it's absorbed through your mouth. Um, there are other nicotine replacement products. There's an inhaler, for example, and a nasal spray. Those aren't used as commonly. There's sometimes some aversive side effects, but but they're also available as... Um, as another alternative. So essentially, you're really just taking nicotine and giving it in another form, in a safer form, essentially. Um, another medication that's available um, is, like you said, Welbutrin, which, which is an antidepressant. And it, serendipitously, they found that in individuals who are at a, a higher dose, like 300 milligrams or more, suddenly found that they didn't like the taste of cigarettes. Mm. So it, it is helpful for some people. Um, not everybody has uh, has a, a response to it, but for some people, particularly people with a history of depression, um, that's an effective medication. And our third medication is Varenicline or Chantix as it's popularly known. Essentially what they did was they, they took nicotine and they synthesized the compound a little bit. So they made it a little bit different than nicotine. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of a unique medication in that it, in some ways it acts like nicotine. So it almost provides kind of a direct replacement, but in other ways it kind of blocks the effects of nicotine. Mm. Um, and all three of these are our most effective medications to help people stop smoking.
1: Are they used together or individually and mm-hmm. for the most part?
2: So. You can use actually two nicotine products together. Now, there's been some important changes that the FDA has made to labeling um, of these products that haven't necessarily hit mainstream media. Um, So sometimes patients coming into our service are are confused or concerned when we're giving them this feedback. But essentially, you are allowed to use two products at once. And in fact, our most effective treatment really is to use a nicotine patch in combination with something like the gum or the lozenge. Hmm. Um, And they kind of work in slightly different ways. The nicotine patch delivers a very slow, steady dose. And so in an immediate moment, people don't necessarily feel like they're getting kind of a kick of nicotine, Mm -hmm. like they might from a cigarette. But it helps to prevent people from going into withdrawal. Um, If people should smoke while on them, it helps them to not find that cigarette very enjoyable. But something like the lozenge or the gum, it's a lot more short-acting. So when you take it, you get a tiny little bit of a kick, not the same kick you'd get off of a cigarette. And so people often find that to be a little bit more beneficial for our cravings. Um, So really using those two products in combination is a very, very effective strategy. And traditionally, the FDA had had told patients that they simply couldn't use two together, that it it wasn't allowable. And they've changed the labeling on these products so that you can do that now. there, some individuals have been using venlafaxine plus Welbutrin, um, you know, Again, thinking of people with a depression history and so forth. Um, some people also can use venlafaxine, perhaps with another medication like the the gum or the lozenge. So, really, in our service, what, what I tell patients, I said, "Let's start with some, with Let's start with one approach. If they don't feel like it's working, uh, we don't let them go too long. We we try another one, mm-hmm. or we add another medication on top of it."
1: I see. And because you're a clinical psychologist, Mm -hmm. you don't prescribe drugs, is that right?
2: Right. So we have physicians who are affiliated with our service or the advanced advanced practice nurses who do the prescribing.
1: I see. I I see. Makes sense. Tell me about the... Withdrawal from nicotine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm fortunate to have grown up in a non smoking house mm-hmm. and I'm a, a lifelong non smoker. I mm-hmm. very, feel very grateful to be able to say. Uh, so I don't really uh, know what that is. Mm-hmm. And although people talk about cravings, is there a physiological uh, or pathological pathophysiological, mm-hmm. uh, syndrome of withdrawal like you would have from narcotics?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's another reason why it's it's often challenging for people to stop. Uh, we know a, there's a well-defined syndrome, and there's a couple of common uh, symptoms that people experience. Um, people have difficulty concentrating. They have changes in their appetites. People often feel very hungry. Um, people have difficulty with their sleep. More somewhat psychological symptoms that correspond are people feel kind of angry and irritable, anxious, stressed, mad, um, and, and they're often kind of challenging to be around quite frankly, <laughs> in those first couple of days. And so, um, and then that corresponds to them having very strong cravings and feeling like you're just really restless and you just want one, but you can't have one. And so, um, some other addictive disorders, like you mentioned, opiates have some additional well-defined physiological symptoms, but I, I think, um, there are some with nicotine, but also some of those psychological symptoms can be really hard for people to overcome.
1: Is there an average time of uh, tobacco exposure mm-hmm. that leads to tobacco addiction? In term, you know, if we can intervene mm-hmm. within, you know, two months or one month or a mm-hmm. week, how quickly do people really become addicted to nicotine?
2: Um, well, we, we primarily have to look at the data in young people because that's when most sure. smoking starts. Um, and when you look to see you know when did someone initiate versus when did someone become kind of a regular smoker often it's 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 pretty pretty soon so, you know, someone will have maybe had their first cigarette at 12 or 13 and within a year or two they're a regular smoker. Mm. So, really we we really need to focus on young people because there's a very small window there of time where you know, we can intervene and probably prevent someone from becoming a lifelong smoker, but it's you can develop a, an addiction to it pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, it's pretty scary. Mm-hmm. What about um the vaporizing um, mm-hmm. e-cigarettes, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, or the various vaporizing uh, tools. I'm sure there's not been enough time for a lot of research about it, but obviously there's a huge amount of controversy in terms of whether this is a, a good thing to as a right. tobacco replacement versus mm-hmm. a gateway tobacco device. Exactly. Any thoughts?
2: Yeah, it's a challenge for our field um, because we we know that these products are out there. We know that patients are have access to them, but we simply don't have the data right now to really understand, are they harmful? Are they helpful right now? We're not in a position where we can suggest that they should be used for cessation. There simply isn't enough evidence that suggests that they're helpful. Hmm. So when patients come into our service, we ask about it because we want to know if they're using them. But I I essentially just tell them what we know up to now about the evidence, what what data is out there right now. And I advise them that they really should start with the evidence-based FDA-approved medications because we know that those help people. Whereas like you said, one risk that we know about the electronic nicotine delivery systems or ENDS, as they're called for short, is that perhaps they kind of allow you to maintain smoking by being able to use them in places where you couldn't use what we call combustible cigarettes, cigarettes you light on fire. Um, And so maybe in some ways it actually perpetuates the problem. It doesn't necessarily help you to stop. Hmm. And among young people, you know, the CDC recently had a report that came out within the last year or so that shows that the rates of these products among young people are, are, are substantially increasing. And a particular concern is that while you you know, you know may be seeing a reduction in some of the other cigarette use, so the combustible cigarette use, we now know that some young people who would never have started smoking cigarettes are now using these products.
1: Because mm, they think they're safe or something. Mm-hmm. And they taste like bubble gum, I understand. Right. Sometimes. They have all these
2: flavors in them, and they're perceived as cool. And you know, they also, I think, feed into that need for technology. And so these are seen as very technological products that are always evolving, and that's a young cohort that's you know very interested in technology and kind of being with the next big thing. Um, so that that's a particular age group that we're pretty worried about.
1: Yeah, uh, I seem to remember, and I could be misremembering, but I, I thought I saw an article in the newspaper about a study. I'm, I'm thinking perhaps in the United Kingdom mm-hmm. that supported uh, the use of these ends mm-hmm. uh, for smoking cessation. Am, am I making that up? Or
2: yeah, so there. Right now, we are not conducting these studies in the United States because there are some special. Um, regulations and requirements that we need to be able to submit to be allowed to use these devices for research. So that's, hmm. that's, a, that's already an issue that we are trying to undertake. In the meantime, these studies have been conducted in New Zealand, for example, and, and other studies across uh, overseas. And there have been some individual trials that do suggest there might be a potential benefit. But just collectively across the board, there's, there's just not enough to say at this point they are useful for cessation. Mm. So there's, there's also other studies that refute and have found no benefit. So you really need a number of trials to come out to show that they're helpful.
1: Do you think that it's likely that this will be studied in the United States? Or is, is there some congressional or FDA mm-hmm. pushback?
2: Well, the, we're working on that right now. I'm part of a, a nicotine research society, and so we're really trying to work with the FDA to to deal with this issue. You know, one of the issues that we have is that when you... This, this applies to a medication, for example. When you try to study a new investigational medication, you need to be able to submit to the FDA everything that went into that medication mm-hmm. so that the FDA understands what are all the chemicals and what are all the ingredients in this medication. We we would be required to do that for these products. And the unfortunate thing is the manufacturers are not releasing that information to us. That's yeah, tough. So we're sort of in this catch-22 position right now where we want, it, we want to be studying them, but the current requirements to be able to study them are good. Are presenting a challenge.
0: Dr. Lisa Fuchito is assistant professor of psychiatry and director of the tobacco treatment service at Smilo Cancer Hospital. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to Yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.